Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org. Today is Friday, June 14th, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. At the beginning of our last podcast, I had presented a lengthy discussion regarding the recent assault on free speech being conducted by YouTube, the world's only viable free video sharing service, and some of the challenges which we face asserting our free speech rights on the internet even when we host our own content. At that time, I could not have known that I would face the prospect of troubles with my own hosting provider only five days later. And as I wrote this, I had just received an answer to my defense of Christogenia against the claims of a certain non-white social justice warrior who thinks that my website is unlawful because it offends him. I had already been shopping for new servers only to get a head start if my defense did not prevail. Christogenia does nothing to violate the acceptable use policies of its service providers, but quite frequently those policies are often fluid and subject to change on short notice according to the whims of corporate lawyers. There are a couple of startup video sharing platforms that advertise themselves as free speech alternatives to YouTube. One is BitChute and another is called Brighteon, B-R-I-G-H-T-E-O-N. But both of these have also already censored their users. Brighteon received pressure from its upstream providers over postings of the New Zealand shooting video and had to remove it from their servers, thereby being forced to censor their own users. An upstream provider is your provider's provider. On some occasions, censorship is merited, such as when it violates state or federal law. For example, one of the characters at the Daily Stormer complained that his open threats of violence against a certain tribal group were censored, but those threats were violations of the laws of every American jurisdiction and certainly overseas. So BitChute and Gab were probably trying to save a fool from himself. I remember when the World Wide Web, which by popular misconception is considered by itself to be the internet, was first opened to the public in 1993. Soon thereafter, I had my own first website, but I didn't need a domain name because at that time, internet service providers were offering dial-up customers free websites in subfolders on their own servers. For a few years, the internet was like a video game version of the proverbial Wild West, where anything went, and if anyone didn't like it, they just didn't have to watch. Within a year, spam was ubiquitous in email and news groups, 
and it quickly became a plague. The internet revolved around competing concepts. The first concept was the ideal of freedom of expression and free and open access to information. And the second ideal was purely based on economic interests. By early 1995, there were tens of thousands of internet business startups, none of which lasted very long because they never made any money and development costs back then were much higher than they are now. But a few companies did last, and today those companies practically control the internet itself. However, it was no game of chance that companies like Google and Amazon had endured even when they did not make any money for years. That was only made possible because a relatively small group of very wealthy or financially influential people tolerated losing large sums of money as a sacrifice so that they could eventually control the internet. They knew what they were doing. Evidently, Google was started in 1995 when its founders were students at Stanford University working on a government-funded project which they took home with them and turned into a company. A lot of early internet and computer software companies got their start that way. The domain google.com was registered in 1997 and they incorporated in 1998, but they did not make their first profit until 2001. A more startling example is Amazon.com, which was founded in 1994, went public in 1997, although it had not yet made any money, and altogether it lost money for over 10 straight years before it had ever made a profit, which it finally did in 2004. Over some of those years, especially from 1999 to 2002, Amazon lost hundreds of millions of dollars. The founders of Yahoo also started at Stanford in 1994, incorporated in 95, went public pretty quickly in 1996, and then began acquiring other and older companies simply by issuing stock a method by which they first became profitable comparatively early in 1997. Purchasing companies for stock is sort of like being able to create your own money with the collusion of investment banks, which in turn is essentially like gambling with the future of others. Yahoo had an operating loss of $2.57 million in the quarter which ended September of 96 and finally made a profit through acquisitions in the same quarter in 1997 where it made a profit of a mere $220,000. Then Yahoo continued to issue new stock and gobble up other internet-based companies until it became the most valuable company in the world for a time 
in January of 2000. But it was all an artificial bubble created by hype over the newly rel relatively new medium and the workings of the investment banks which underwrote the stock and kept the company afloat. Yahoo helped Google dominate internet search engines by promoting it until 2004. Yahoo employed and promoted Google until 2004 when it dropped Google in favor of its own search engine. Facebook was a latecomer, founded in 2004, but for years it had no profit and very little revenue. It operated at a deficit which was often a rather large deficit, spending hundreds of millions of dollars injected into the company by venture capitalists and corporations like Microsoft in exchange for stock that valued the company as high as $15 billion in 2007, a company that never made a dime and still had very few users. Later, in 2008, Facebook employees were selling their own stock at rates, which valued the company at only 4 or $5 billion, but were nevertheless highly profitable for those employees. Facebook did not generate a positive cash flow until September of 2009, around the same time that that company began acquiring other internet ventures in exchange for stock shares. And profitability was not consistent until 2013. So for six years it bled money and then it made a little here and there for four more. Reportedly well over half of Facebook's revenue comes from advertising in America. Advertising on its own website in America. Historically, most small businesses fail within a year simply because they fail to attract enough customers to make any money in their first year. In the real world, a business that loses money every month for years would never be able to survive. But it was not so with the internet. On the internet, it is the investment banks who chose the winners and losers and who, make sure the, who made sure the employees of certain companies got paid even when those companies were bleeding cash. These are the same bankers who have had undue influence over every other aspect of our lives since 1913. These are the same bankers who have come to control our entire political process, who choose all the candidates on both sides of the political aisle, and who for that reason have won every election without even ever having run for office. My point in discussing this is to show the lengths to which certain companies were able to go in order to ultimately gain control over entire sectors of the internet. These companies all lost money, large sums of money, year after year, and managed to grow as they were losing money while at the same time most, if not all, of their competitors were dying. There are probably a few other examples. Twitter, founded in 2006, 
reported its first profitable year in 2018. What brick-and-mortar business, what business out there in the real world could lose money every year for 12 years and continue to function? Somewhere there are interests with a lot of money to spare who make these sacrifices because they understand that the ultimate reward is to maintain control of the flow of information to a large majority of the global population. They had that control with television and radio, and now they're trying to maintain that control with the Internet. Amazon is not merely an Internet store. And Google is not merely a search engine. They have each developed immense network infrastructures, which are probably more complex and extensive than most internet service providers and hosting companies, even than most communications companies. And they have a large presence in many countries around the world, including China. So they have each become service providers themselves. And they are upstream providers for many smaller companies. This gives them control over a large portion of the Internet in a sector where their most significant competitors are Microsoft and IBM. They each also constantly develop new services to use on that infrastructure in order to make the most money from it and in order to break into new business markets. For instance, and, and I was just talking to somebody about this this afternoon, I don't know how they do it, but if you go to Google Pay, Google Wallet, whatever they call it this week because they've changed the name of it a few times, you go to Google Pay and you send any email address a hundred bucks and Google will send an email to that person showing them how to get their hundred bucks and not charge any fee period no fee I get a few donations a month on Google Pay I can transfer it immediately to my checking account through my debit card and is no fee where my credit card processor wants three percent PayPal wants, I think it's 2.9% or sometimes more, sometimes 3.5%, I think, or something like that. They all rake off a, a fee, and, and that's because they all have services and hardware and, and expenses and employees of their own that they have to pay for. But Google just does it for free. Don't tell me that Google's not looking to make immense profits in the future once they get enough of a grip on the market share. Now, they're going to be pulling a lot, a lot of that market share away from Facebook and credit card processors, but they're not doing really doing anything for nothing. And they're willing, once again, which was their original business model, they're willing to take huge losses up front so that they could gain control later on. And it takes deep pockets to do that. That's been the business for all these big companies. That's been the business model on the Internet 
which also allows them to choke out competition that can't take those losses because most people just can't. International business is generally amoral. And to the bankers, religious, cultural, and racial differences are an inconvenience where the only concern is to increase revenue. Leftists are generally immoral, and to them, other races and heathen cultures are a smorgasbord where the only concern is carnal gratification. So the traditional Christian who desires to preserve his own unique heritage, race, and culture is always going to be despised by both businessmen and leftists. When freedom of expression and an open exchange of information are contrary to the success of commercial interests, they become less desirable ideals and therefore they must be reinterpreted to accommodate business. To them, freedom of speech is a right to spam or a right to trample traditional values and the expression of inconvenient ideas must be eliminated from the public and labeled as hate so that they do not interfere with business, which also happens to accommodate the leftists. Therefore, liberalism is the natural bed partner of international commerce. They go hand in hand. One of them accommodates the other, and it goes both ways. Where organizations such as the Southern Poverty Law Center and Hope Not Hate, there's one for you, move to suppress our God-given rights our supposedly civil liberties. It is only because they are the unofficial police agencies and party apparatchiks for international business. For the same cabal of bankers who have sought to dominate the internet for themselves. It is fairly well known that the Hope Not Hate group is almost entirely funded by left-wing billionaire George Soros. Often, when large internet service providers or hosting companies move to suppress civil liberties, it is because they themselves are beholden to the same bankers and businessmen. The other side of the coin is negative media exposure, of which they are also in fear. It is difficult for us to compete with the deep pockets of left-wing billionaires, but that alone is certainly not going to make us concede. Christagenia uses Cloudflare for its DNS provider, which I felt was a necessary move after a seemingly relentless series of DDoS attacks, denial-of-service attacks, which we suffered a few years ago.
So a supposed abuse complaint was made to Cloudflare and they forwarded the complaint to my hosting company who contacted me with a copy of the message they received from Cloudflare. The following complaint was originally received by Cloudflare from an individual named Aaron Sankin. And we have checked this clown out and there'll be a link to his blog when I post this program. He said, I'm a reporter working on a story for Gizmodo. My piece is looking at the companies that host sites of organizations that have been accused of spreading hate. The website at this URL, meaning Christagenia.org, is operated by one of the groups on my list, which is a combination of lists of hate groups provided to me by the Southern Poverty Law Center, Hope Not Hate, the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, and the Counter-Extremism or Extremism Project. I'm interested in reaching out to the hosting provider of these companies, which is currently being masked by Cloudflare's anti-DDoS technology. I spoke with Cloudflare's general counsel, Doug Kramer, he's a Jew, who suggested I use the abuse reporting system to determine the hosting provider of each of these sites. And of course, Cloudflare forwarded that immediately to my hosting company, which made me address it and, and made me feel as if my existence on the internet was being threatened. So the next move you expect is to be unplugged. The same complaint was filed for both the main Christagenia website and for the Emma Heiser subdomain. I would not doubt if I am faced with more such complaints in the weeks and months to come, as there certainly seems to be a large increase in efforts to remove conservative and traditional Christian voices from the internet. On the surface, this Aaron Sankin character seems to be an individual actor, but in light of all the YouTube channel cancellations and other leftist agitation in social media websites, he may certainly be part of a larger effort. Notice that the letter threatens negative media exposure if the hosting provider continues to offer services to a website which, in his own words, is a group which is spreading hate. But first, of course, Christogenia is not a group. It is only the academic endeavor of a single individual who also happens to preserve the writings of a few men that are now deceased. Secondly, none of the sources for this claim that Christogenia is a hate group are government agencies. While some of them have official sounding names, they are all merely private organizations with openly leftist political ideals, which have an interest in suppressing the civil liberties of conservatives and traditional Christians. Even Twitter recently refused to participate in an event promoted by the so-called counter-extremism project, questioning their sources of funding. 
Here I will paraphrase my response to this letter. I do not understand this complaint or this slander of spreading hate. Christagetting.org is a traditional Christian website. It does not advocate violence. It does not advocate any activity which is illegal under the laws of the United States of America. If there is a specific complaint, I will be happy to look into it. But this seems to me to be some sort of blanket smear from someone who may not like our traditional or conservative Christian profession. I have been, and I omitted the name of my hosting service, I have been a company customer for six years and have always cooperated when there were problems. Copyright violations posted on the, on the Christogenia forum and silly little things like that. This particular complaint seems to be a political smear with which the SPLC and Hope Not Hate has persecuted Christians in the past, even organizations as popular as the Family Research Council. As a Christian, I do not respect their opinions, and as an American, I am not compelled to. If there is any violation of United States law or specific company policies, I will be happy to do my best to resolve it. After making this answer, I went to my hosting company's acceptable use policy and I was relieved to find that the following clause was still impact, intact as I had been a customer there for over five years and sometimes changes in these policies go unnoticed. So it says, about their company that it supports free speech on the internet and will not suspend or cancel a customer's account simply because it disagrees with the views expressed by the customer. Wonderful. Not really knowing whether the company would continue to uphold its own policy as I have been burned by several companies in the past in that same way. I ordered another server from a different company as a precaution because sometimes it takes a few days to procure a server when you do not already have a relationship with the company as I have also learned in the past. I was prepared to order two more servers to meet our current requirements, but it is not necessary since late yesterday I received the following answer from a support manager at my hosting company. William, I responded to Cloudflare. You are protected under the First Amendment right of free speech. People are not forced to the website, so you are free to say what you want. If they do not agree or find it distasteful, then they can simply not go to the site. I also took a look around, meaning he took a gander at Christagenia, Nothing violent here, meaning I'm not breaking any laws, making threats of violence towards any individual or group, which is already against the law. It, it's against the law out in the street, never mind just on the internet. 
So he says, we will close out the case. Thanks. And this was a relief, and I am quite pleased that my hosting company still cares about free speech and is principled to follow its own policy rather than cowering to the ridiculous demands of a leftist agitator. The promotion of violence is against the law in most countries and in all American states. In some states, they call it inciting a riot. In some states, they call it terroristic threats. Other states have other names for it. But now, because it is compatible with certain political agendas, some things are misinterpreted as a promotion of violence when indeed they are not. I have already mentioned that Brighteon was forced to remove the New Zealand shooting video from its servers as certain governments around the world claim that posting it promotes violence and glorifies the shooter, among other claims, other similar claims. But if that is the case, if posting the New England shooter video promotes violence, if that is the case, why are there any Hollywood movies, evening news reports, television sitcoms, or documentary films depicting acts of violence? I should have said probably television programs, sitcoms, it don't matter. They're all comedies, even when they're documentaries. They should all be removed from public access immediately. All video, game, all video games depicting the shooting of moving creatures or living creatures should be removed from public access immediately. All books and novels depicting or describing such acts should be removed from public access immediately. They all, obviously, also promote violence. This is just one aspect of the hypocrisy of liberalism, which is shared by international business. Another hypocritical method of suppression is to label someone an anti-Semite. There is no such label used for the protection of any other racial group or tribe. For examples, American colonists were never labeled as anti-Nativites, and Zionist Jews are not labeled as anti-Arabites. Even southern slave owners were never labeled as anti-Negroites. The charges of anti-Semitism are especially pervasive on the Internet because most of the landlords over electro electronic properties also happen to be Jews. And Jews may be even more greatly overrepresented in electronic media than they are in conventional media. Since it certainly seems that Jews generally support agendas such as the 
proliferation of sodomy and gender confusion, Zionism, open borders for all countries except Israel, and the trampling of all religions and principles except Judaism. It is no wonder that more and more people are expressing opinions which are hostile to Jews. One recent victim of YouTube account cancellations complained that there was no equivalent word to describe what Jews perceptibly do to white Christians, which is to mock Christianity and to denounce any positive aspect of a concept of white racial distinction. But there is such a word. It is nearly 1,800 years older than the term anti-Semite. And it is found in the Christian Bible, in the epistles of John. That word is antichrist. Unfortunately, the Roman Catholic and other organized churches do not understand the term. But it is easily comprehensible in the context of John's epistles. The apostle clearly wrote that anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ is an antichrist. To understand what John meant by the term Christ, one must refer to his Gospels in chapters 1 and 4, where he wrote that it is the equivalent of the Hebrew term Messiah. John used the term Antichrist in the plural, and speaking of his own time, he had written that even now there are many antichrists, by which he must have been referring especially to Jews. We are not anti-Semites. We are anti-anti-anti-antichrist. That's what we are. We do not have to accept the Jewish slander of anti-Semite, which is a peculiar term that is used as a psychological ploy to immunize Jews against any and all criticism. But as Christians, we are commanded by our Lord to stand against the Antichrists. Most of our critics come from among this particular group of Antichrists and therefore we understand that they are only acting in accordance with their inherent nature. So we can never try to change their minds. That would be a waste of time. When one of them acts like us, like Brother Nathaniel the Clown, it's for a peculiar motive. There's a reason behind it. It's not sincere. It is recorded, it is twice recorded during the course of his ministry that Yahshua Christ had overthrown the tables of the money changers, expelling them from the temple of God. This is found in the Gospel of John, early in his ministry in chapter 2, and again in Matthew, 
during the final week before his crucifixion, in chapter 21. Perhaps the internet will not be entirely safe for Christians until it also is cleared of the money changers in its temples, or at least until Christians learn that they must avoid their temples altogether. It is already difficult to find internet hosting companies who have not adopted the model terms of service provisions which were fabricated by and are promulgated by the Jewish publicity agency known as the ADL, the so-called Anti-Defamation League, another way that the Jews immunize themselves against criticism and against legitimate accusations. And those ADL fabricated terms of service are quite purposely ambiguous and oppressive of free speech. If the Jews continue their ambition for absolute domination of the internet, ultimately we will not have any free speech at all as company after company cowers to their demands for fear of the Jews. Now we shall continue our commentary on the Gospel of John, part 24, and this is The Nature of the Beast. We will complete our commentary this evening on John chapter 8. Still preaching in the temple on the last great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, six months before his crucifixion, Yahshua Christ disputed with the Jews as to whether God was their father. The Jews, the world's ultimate and original hypocrites, had claimed that Abraham was their father. And they had also claimed that God was their father. They had already threatened to kill Christ for his claim that God was his father. And John also recorded in his later chapters that as they planned to have him crucified, they raised that charge once again. But it evidently did not bother them to make that same claim for themselves. As we discussed at length in part 23 of this com commentary, subtitled, The Devil Has Children, Yahshua Christ acknowledged the claim by the Jews to be the children of Abraham. But he denied their claim to be children of Yahweh God. In the Christian scriptures, it is attested that Adam was a son of God in Luke chapter 3, and that the Athenians were children of God in Acts chapter 17. The children of Israel are consistently identified as children of God throughout the Old Testament, from as early as Exodus chapter 13 and Deuteronomy chapter 14. It is evident in history and in ancient inscriptions that the Athenians descended from Javan, who is named as a son of Japheth, the son of Noah, in Genesis chapter 10. 
So if Adam was a son of God, by extension, so were all of the children of Noah. But of all these, Yahweh, God himself, only gave to the children of Israel the recognition and position of sons, which in the New Testament is called adoption. But the original Greek word means only sonship. So while other Adamic nations besides Israel were considered to be children of God in spite of their not having the law, the prophets, the covenants, or the sonship, and all of the Israelites are expressly considered to be children of God. These Jews were not, as Christ explicitly denied them their claim. Since the Athenians to whom Paul had spoken were pagan, and since even the Old Testament Israelites were pagan, status as a son is not a religious status. The only thing the Athenians and the Israelites had in common was their common descent from Adam, the son of God, as we are informed in Genesis chapter 10, once we understand that the Athenians are the Yavana of Persian inscriptions and the Yavana of the Old Testament, which is also often mistranslated as Greek. They weren't Greeks. There were different tribes of Greeks that were distinguished from one another. Dorians, Danans, and Athenians, and Ionians, who are Athenians, Yavana being the Persian equivalent of Javan being the equivalent of the Greek Ionian, which we can tell from the Septuagint. The only explanation which allows us to properly understand this situation is the historically verifiable explanation that at least many of the rulers of Judea and of the temple and the inhabitants of Judea and those who disputed with Christ here were Edomites and not Israelites. As we see is manifest in the histories of Flavius Josephus and in Paul's epistle to the Romans. Therefore, these Jews who dispute with Christ are also those whom he himself described in the Revelation in chapter 3 as being of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Judeans and are not, but do lie. When Yahshua Christ informed the Jews that God was not their father, they insisted in turn that they were not born of fornication, revealing to us that they knew exactly what he had meant by his assertion. But in fact, as we had also discussed at length, these very attitudes and circumstances were prophesied in relation to Judea and Jerusalem in the book of Malachi, in chapter 2. Where we have, where we read, where, where, I'm sorry, we read it last week, but we'll read it again. Where we read a dialogue, and the priests, who are evidently not all Levites, 
are described as having asked, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, every man against his brother, by profaning the covenant of our fathers? The answer, as well as the assertions of Christ here, reveal that we do not all have a common origin and we are not all children of the same God. As Malachi next wrote, that Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh, whom he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange god. Judah married a Canaanite woman, and later it is revealed in the prophets, especially in Jeremiah chapter 2 and in Ezekiel chapter 16, that the presence of Canaanites in Jerusalem and in Israel was a significant reason for the apostasy of the people. But Judah was granted mercy by Yahweh, ostensibly for the sake of the promises to Jacob. And later, he had legitimate sons of Tamar. Esau had also married Canaanite women, and Paul wrote that he found no room for repentance. He ended up forfeiting his birthright because he was a profane man and a fornicator, as Paul explained in Hebrews chapter 12. So ostensibly, the prophet Malachi was using Judah, the patriarch, as a type for what would eventually happen to the people of Judah in his own time, that they would also marry the daughter of a strange god, which is an allegory for their having absorbed the Edomites into Judaism. In Romans chapter 9, where Paul prays only for his kinsmen according to the flesh, those who are Israelites, and blames the apostasy of his own time on the fact that they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. He goes on to contrast Jacob and Esau, referring to the descendants of one as vessels of mercy and of the other as vessels of destruction. By this, Paul corroborates the history of Josephus and the reasoning of Christ here that his adversaries are of the seed of Abraham, but Yahweh could not be their father. As Paul also explained in Hebrews chapter 12, one is either a son or a bastard. While the adversaries of Christ had denied it, the children of Esau were indeed born of fornication as they were mixed with the blood of the Canaanites, Kenites, and Rephaim. And therefore, they are, or they were, bastards. For that same reason, we have seen in John chapter 6, that Jude, Judas, Judas Iscariot, was described as a devil. Here in John chapter 8, Yahshua Christ explicitly told these Jews that they were of their father, the devil, who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Cain was a liar when he said, am I my brother's keeper? 
because he should have been. And he was a murderer when he slew him. Cain, who was actually only Abel's half-brother, as Genesis 3 is a parable for sexual impropriety and fornication, was descended from the seed of the serpent, which we are informed in Revelation chapter 12, is indeed the devil and Satan. This is the origin of today's Jews, as they descended mostly from those Edomite converts of 2nd and 1st century B.C. Judea, who had always and vehemently rejected Yahshua Christ. This is the nature of the beast, the Edomite Jewish beast. Christ never told them that they were devils because they sought to kill him. Rather, he told them that they sought to kill him because they were devils. This is evident in the context of the entire discourse here, but especially where he said such things as, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. They were of the offspring of Abraham, but as Paul professed in Hebrews, bastards are not truly sons. Then he said, if God were your father, you would love me. Rather than, if you would love me, God is your father. He did not say that. Then, in verse 44, as it is in the King James Version, he said, You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Cain was a murderer because there was no truth in him. The English word congenial means of a person pleasant because of a personality, qualities, or interests that are similar to one's own. It is said to have been derived from the Latin words con or with. Con means with in Latin. And genius, which in Latin is the personification of one's natural inclinations, according to the American Heritage College Dictionary, third edition. The English word congenital is of a person, and these definitions are the standard ones offered up when you search the word on Google. Congenital is of a person having a particular trait from birth, or by firmly established habit. Now, that last part is a modern innovation, as the word basically means present from birth. It is derived from the same Latin word, con, meaning with, and genitus, 
a word closely related to genius, which simply means born. And once you realize that genitus means born, that gens is a race or family, then you'll understand what it means when it says that genius is the personification of one's natural inclinations. Genius is the personification of the natural incli inclinations that you inherited from the races or race of your parents. So if you're a bastard, you're going to have two different competing sets of natural inclinations. But if you're a true-born son, you're going to have the natural inclinations which Yahweh our God had instilled in your first father. That's why a bastard can never enter into the house of the Lord. That is why, as a Heskelis had once said, the bastard is forever an enemy of the true son. So to be congenial with someone is to share similar qualities and to be agreeable and it is a congenital condition. <laughs> Therefore, men naturally love their kindred who have similar characters and qualities. These adversaries of Christ were not congenial and Christ himself tells them that the reason for their lack of congeniality is congenital. For that same reason, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul of Tarsus described the Jews as those who both killed Prince Joshua and the prophets and banished us and are not pleasing to Yahweh and contrary to all men. Hostility to God is a congenital disorder. And for that reason, a hundred generations of Jews and more have consistently remained hostile to God. While any man can sin, this particular race, the Jews, can evidently do little but sin. And because of their inherent nature, they cannot keep themselves from their wicked deeds. Now, we continue from that point where Christ had told his adversaries that they were of their father the devil. In John 8.45, where he continues to address them. Now, because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Who from among you censures me concerning wrongdoing or sin? If I speak truth, for what reason do you not believe me? He who is from of Yahweh hears the words of Yahweh. For this reason you do not hear, because you are not from of Yahweh. Judah married the daughter of a strange God. When Christ challenges them and says, 
which of you convinces me of sin? As the King James Version reads, verse 46. He is asking them to come forward as individuals and testify as to what sin he may have committed since they are accusing him. The Codex Beze wants the entirety of verse 46 and also the last portion of verse 47 where it says, you are not from of God. That clause for which we have, you are not from of Yahweh, may have been rendered, you are not sons of Yahweh, as it is speaking of people. And the word sons is inferred by the Greek preposition ek. This we have already discussed at length in relation to verse 44 of this chapter. So once again, Christ tells them that Yahweh was not their father. And for that reason, even their apostasy is congenital. While the sheep can be led astray into apostasy, these men cannot help but to be in apostasy, as it is natural to them. And the fact of their birth So bastards cannot ever possibly hear and obey God. While sons and daughters have an opportunity to obey God in Christ, which all along was the very purpose of the gospel. Verse 48, the Judeans replied and said to him, do we not speak well? that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon. Of course, the Judeans despised the Samaritans. Even if any Samaritans were Israelites, they didn't have their genealogy to prove it. While even these Edomite Judeans professed to be legitimate Judeans because Herod also burned those genealogies so that nobody could be traced to anywhere. They will accuse him more frequently of having a devil, meaning that they were accusing him of being possessed by a demon in the later chapters of John. But in John chapter 10, where the accusation is made, the people who witnessed the healing of the man who was blind from birth in John chapter 9, refuted the notion that a devil could open the eyes of the blind. And we'll discuss that at length in our next presentation of this gospel. In the New Testament, there are two different words which are, unfortunately, both translated as devil. Of these, the first is diabolus, or false accuser, the same word which is used to describe Judas Iscariot in John chapter 6, and the true father of these men here in John chapter 8. So a diabolus can be a person, a walking, talking, breathing devil. For this, Peter wrote in his first epistle, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, 
walks about seeking whom he may devour. And James, in chapter 4 of his own epistle, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Likewise, Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, warned that a man who is a novice should not be recognized in a position of leadership, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Sounds like Matthew Heimbach, right? The second word translated as devil is dahimon or dahiman or daemon. You pick the pronunciation. Nobody can say which one is right or wrong. I prefer dahimon. Sometimes it appears in its diminutive form, which is dahimanian, and which is a demon, a wicked spirit such as the type that sometimes vexed men by possessing them. This word we always translate as demon in the Christogenian New Testament. That's how it should have been distinguished in the King James Version. Likewise, in the Old Testament, we find the same two types of devil. First, there is the Hebrew word satir, Strong's number 8163. This is the origin of the Greek and ultimately English word satyr, which was originally a half-man, half-goat creature in the wilderness, or sometimes in the bedrooms of women, since the satyr was also a sexually insatiable party animal. Some accounts describe the satyr instead as half-man, half-ape. The second type of devil, devil, is the shed. Strong's number 7700, shed or shedim in the plural. A spirit or shadow or ghost, which is a demon. In the Old Testament, the devils to which the children of Israel had made idolatrous sacrifices were sometimes satyrs, as in Leviticus 17.7, and sometimes shadim, as in Deuteronomy 32.17. In the Enoch literature, demons are the disembodied spirits of bastards. As we may see in the Dead Sea Scroll, which is designated 4Q204, where there is a command to exterminate all the spirits of the bastards and the sons of the watchers, or fallen angels, and which seems to have been speaking prophetically of the same events which are described in Revelation chapter 19 of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the future, and hopefully soon-to-be-expected marriage supper of the Lamb. Again, in the Dead Sea Scroll, which is designated Q510, a fragment of what is called the Songs of the Sage, in a part of fragment one, declared the splendor of his radiance in order to frighten and terrify all the spirits of the ravaging angels and the bastard spirits, demons, Lilith, 
owls and jackals, and those who strike unexpectedly to lead astray the spirit of knowledge, to make their hearts forlorn. The people of God, having the spirits of knowledge, are sheep who may be led astray by these demons, just like we see every evening in the living rooms of America as people are glued to their television sets. In his epistle to the Colossians, Paul of Tarsus had derided idolatry as the worshipping of angels, evidently referring to the fallen angels from whom bastards and bastard spirits are derived. For that reason, Yahshua Christ informs his Edomite bastard adversaries that God is not their father. For that same reason, the Apostle John had written a warning of these in his first epistle in chapter 4. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. John was speaking not of disembodied spirits, but of embodied spirits. They'd gone out into the world. They were the source of idolatry in the ancient world. They are the false prophets who would seek to corrupt Christianity. The converso Jewish infiltrators, the Benny Hins and Joel Osteens of the world. As the Apostle Jude had warned in verse 4 of his epistle, for there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, prosperity gospel, free love, sodomy, and denying, by turning it into lascivious, lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So they basically deny them by denying their word and their law. Or I should say, his word and his law. So bastards are devils. And these bastards, these children of fornication, as even they themselves understood Christ to be referencing, were indeed devils, and the children of their father, the devil. It is their inherent nature to contend with God and man, for which reason Christ later warns his apostles, again referring to the congenital traits of men, if they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will also keep yours. This is the nature of man and beast, the character is dependent upon the origin. A man may tell a Jew the truth, and the Jew will slander him, rejecting the truth. Christ told his adversaries the truth, and they wanted to kill him for it. So they dehumanized him by accusing him of being possessed by a demon. The best way in which they knew to dehumanize a man at that time. Today they have different tactics. They call a man Nazi 
and accuse those who tell the truth of spreading hate. And that alone proves our point that these bastards and demons are the children of the same beasts which killed Christ and his apostles. So we surely do know the nature of the beast. Again, Yahshua refutes them. Yahshua replied, I do not have a demon. Rather, I honor my father. We honor our father by keeping his law. No sodomy, no fornication. And for that, we get called Nazis and accused of spreading hate. Fuck those Jews. Yahshua replied, I do not have a demon. Rather, I honor my father and you dishonor me. Now, I do not seek credit for me. It is he seeking and judging. Or perhaps not quite as literally, that may have been translated, there is one seeking and judging. The word credit is from doxa, which Liddell and Scott define primarily as an expectation or an opinion or judgment. Here it's credit in contrast to the verbal forms of another word, time, which is honor, or in the negative, dishonor. In verse 49, once again, we are found in a situation where by honoring God, men are slandered. The same congenitally diseased people with the same tactics that they used against Christ are at the top of our society once again this day and attempting to silence every voice of opposition and true Christian profession in this same manner. Instead of being called Pharisees and Sadducees, they're called ADL and SPLC, basically. And that's probably a pretty close approximation. Christ responds, or continues to respond. Truly, truly, I say to you, if one would keep my word, he would not see death for eternity. That's the reward. That is why, in spite of everything we face today, we must obey our God. Not that the body wouldn't die, but that the spirit lives forever. As Paul indicated in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, meaning this physical body, were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, because we're comfortable in this world, at least much of the time, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with 
the Lord. Christians should despise this natural body rather than be comfortable with it and seek rather to be with Christ. That's an expression of faith. Those who are born of God are born from above and will ultimately keep his word as his purpose is that as I live, saith Yahweh, every knee shall bow to me and every, every tongue shall confess to God. This is in reference to all of the children of Israel. Those who are born from above, as Paul cited this passage in Romans chapter 14 and then explained, so then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. In response, rather than even attempt to comprehend what he had meant, his adversaries strengthened his, their attempt strengthened their attempt to dehumanize him. Then the Judeans said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets, yet you say, If one would keep my word, he shall not taste of death for eternity? Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. What do you make of yourself? This series of arguments seems to indicate that it was indeed the Sadducees from whom were the high priests and their closest associates who Yahshua was disputing with here. As Luke had explained in Acts chapter 23, where he also corroborates the descriptions found in the works of Josephus. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. As it is described in Acts chapter 5, the same Sadducees were seriously agitated by the healings and exorcisms which were being made by the apostles. Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. So here, Yahshua replied, If I would honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is the Father who is honoring me, whom you say that he is our God. If Yahweh was their God, they would, of course, have loved Christ, since first they would have heard and understood the truth of the Word of God, which he was, which he represented. I should change that, I'm sorry. Which he represented. <coughs> and secondly, they would have recognized the miracles which he was able to perform, which testified for him that he was from God. So he tells them, Yet you do not know him, but I know him. And if I should say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I know him, and I keep his word. For this very reason, much later, John had written in chapter 2 of his first epistle, Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, 
Even now there are many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Just as Paul describes, they were not truly Israelites, but Edomites. So he goes on to say, but you have an unction and anointing, Christians being the truly anointed people. You have an unction from the Holy One, and you, won't, and you know all things, all things through the gospel. I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he that denies that Jesus is the Christ, which is the Messiah. He is Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. Whosoever denies the Son, the same has not the Father. Reading the King James Version here, we omit the rest of verse 23, which was only added to the text in italics. One cannot be of God or have any relationship with him or have any chance of salvation if one denied that Yahshua is the Christ. Of course, John was writing in relation to his own time and place and out of that context, the words cannot have a practical application. Christ knew that there would be men who would not believe him as he professed in John chapter 12, and that the word would ultimately judge them. So he continues to answer them here. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he has seen and is delighted. As we have already discussed in verse 37 of this chapter, Christ had acknowledged the claim of his enemies to be the offspring of Abraham as the Edomites were, but he denied them their claim that they were children of God, which the Edomites, being bastards, could not be. Here John writes, and is delighted. The King James Version has, and was glad. The verb is in the aorist tense which refers to an ongoing action that is not necessarily completed. A few months later, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 22, Christ admonished the Sadducees once again and said to them, But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The children of God do not die, but rather their bodies die. After their bodies die, they have eternal spirits which live on. For that, Christ says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Likewise, we may read in chapters 2 and 3 of the wisdom of Solomon. For God, from verse 23, for God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil, 
that serpent back there in Genesis chapter 3, death came into the world, and they that do hold of his side do find it. And then we go to chapter 3, verse 1, where the context isn't breaking, but the chapter numbers are different because men added them later on, and the chapter shouldn't have changed. But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, even though death came into the world. And there shall no torment touch them. In the sight of the unwise, they seemed to die. And their departure is taken for misery. And they're going from us to be utter destruction, but they are in peace. We think death is a horrible thing. As Christians, we should understand that death is only a passing to a better existence in the hand of God, in peace being an image of God's own eternity. So Christ explained that Abraham was in that peace and rejoiced to see his day. And then in verse 57, Then the Judeans said to him, You do not yet have 50 years. Actually, he was only probably 32 by my understanding. And you have seen Abraham? Now, some manuscripts, some old manuscripts, the 3rd century Papyrus P75, the 4th century Codex Sinaiticus, and the Codex known as O70, which is from the 5th century but never got a fancy name, some of those manuscripts end this clause to read, and Abraham has seen you, rather than, and you have seen Abraham. While it is possible that these men may have been Pharisees, and there were Pharisees present at the beginning of the discussion, which is evident in verse 13, the arguments against Christ here are more consistent with the beliefs of the Sadducees, who rejecting all things spiritual and rejecting the notion that God had any role or any care in the affairs of men, couldn't possibly have understood how it was that Christ could have seen Abraham or how Abraham may have seen Christ. Yahshua said to them, verse 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham came to be, I am. Yahshua Christ, the Word made flesh, certainly is Yahweh God incarnate. As he says in the Revelation, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And as Yahweh said in Isaiah, in chapter 44, Thus saith Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. And again in chapter 48, Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. 
being the word made flesh, before he was made in the person of Yahshua, he could only have been the word, Yahweh God the Spirit, as Christ himself said in John chapter 4. God is a spirit. He can appear incarnate in the body of a man, but he is still essentially a spirit. Here his enemies must have understood him well enough to once again want to kill him for his profession, even though nothing which he said had actually transgressed the law. Then they took up stones in order that they would cast them at him, but he hid and departed from the temple. At the end of this verse, the Codex Alexandrinus and the majority text append the words, and going through the midst of them, he passed by thusly, which accounts for the clause found in the King James Version. The Codices Ephraimi Siri and O70 append, then he departed, going through the midst of them, and passed by thusly. Our text follows, which omits the clause, follows the papyri P66 and P75, and the codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Beze, and Washingtonensis. Today, they no longer say, he has a demon. Instead, they say, he is a Nazi, or he is an anti-Semite. They were devils then, and they are still devils today. They were false accusers then, and they are false accusers today. They had an agenda then, and they have that same agenda today. It is all congenital, and they will never be congenial, as it is the nature of the beast, the nature of the Jew, to be contrary to all men, and to imagine that they can dispute with God. As we open John chapter 9, Yahshua Christ is seen in the street outside the temple, evidently later that very same day. There he heals a man, and the sequence of events is just as important to us to understand as the events themselves where we may truly learn how the blind can see. This concludes our commentary on John chapter 8. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night.